Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 46 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. He's Steve Vladek. He's Bobby Chesney, and it's a rare nighttime evening edition, Bobby Chesney. This is kind of exciting. I think the last time we did an evening recording was some emergency episode. Coming got fired. Coming got fired. Did wait, okay, so let's be clear. It's it's eight PM Central on Wednesday night, and this is just because we had crowded schedules and couldn't pull it off. <laughs> There's before. no so far as we know, there is no emergency justifying this evening edition other than the fact that we've deprived our listeners so far this week of a regularly scheduled episode. I'm sure they're all thinking, God, this week is going so well. I know. And then, and then they, we came in and then their it. their their queue of podcasts drops some more. Our, our listeners are having as good a week as Roy Moore's Senate campaign. Or Roy, Roy Moore's lawyer. Well, is lawyer the right word to use there? Spokesperson? I don't know. You know the demand letter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this, this is not wow. going to end well for, 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 for Judge Moore. Yeah. Do we have to call him that? All right. We actually don't have to call him that. Really? I, mean, I, I was using that term somewhat sarcastically. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so, Bobby, obviously, um, we're busy because that's why we're recording on a Wednesday night. But what's going on in the world? Well, we've got a lot of things to talk about, and they're going to be sort of around the horn. And I like an episode like this where we have a variety of things. Uh, let's start off by talking about uh, the first ever en banc decision. Was it the first ever? Well, there's some debate on Twitter about this. Okay, so that'll be a thing to talk about. The certainly Foreign Intelligence one, Surveillance Court. Certainly one of the court. first two en banc decisions by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. We've got a sharply divided 6-5 split Whoa. of the FISC, if, if you will, trial level, the yes. the. Fisk, not Fisk Court of Review, but Fisk judges. We'll explain di- all of this. Dividing on a question involving the ACLU and the Yale Media Freedom and Information Access Clinic. Also known as MAFIA. Best <laughs> acronym of any clinic ever. That's pretty strong. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that decision. Uh, we will then move on to uh, the s- suggestion of a second <laughs> special counsel, Steve. What's going on there? Well, so uh, as we know, Attorney General Sessions uh, testified yesterday before the House Judiciary Committee, or at least apparently he testified. He may not remember testifying. I'm not clear on what he does and doesn't remember these days. But there was a letter sent by the Justice Department on Monday um, about requests from Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee to the Attorney General to appoint a special counsel to investigate Hillary Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, all things Clinton. Louis Gohmert brought a, a chart, the, the greatest chart I've ever seen in the history of the world. <laughs> we'll talk about the chart we'll talk for about sure, and, and Gohmert. But so I actually, I, I just want to talk about how I think folks actually were overreacting to the DOJ letter. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I am not one to, to give this Justice Department or this Attorney General the benefit of the doubt, but I think in this case he might deserve it. I, I think he, he does deserve it, and I think that people, you know, is it, is it worth being worried about? Yes. Is this particular right. episode an instance to say, aha? Right. Are the tanks rolling? No, exactly. At least not here. The Fulda Gap has not yet been uh, invaded. Yes. All right, and then after that, we're gonna we're gonna note the uh, the probably soon to be signed into law National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year eighteen. We got a new NDAA, and it's like a it's like an annual holiday tradition. It's always got a little bit of Gitmo stuff, and, a, and these days a little bit of cyber stuff. Or- ornaments for everybody. Ornaments for everybody. You it's, get a random provision. You yeah. get a random provision. <laughs> you get a random provision. Yeah. It's like Oprah wrote. The thing. All right. So uh, we'll talk about just a few of the highlights there, and then we'll move on quickly to uh, some more congressional activity. We've got the Senate Foreign uh, Relations Committee held an interesting hearing, and uh, we'll hear a little bit about insights that did or Nucle- did not Nuclear Weapons that. Launch Authority. And this is a this is kind of a slap you across the face and wake up and pay attention topic. Yeah. Whether it was that kind of uh, content in the hearing. Yeah. 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 Um, we also have uh, uh, my, my favorite story of the week that uh, the Wall Street Journal broke last Friday, Bobby, that apparently Michael Flynn and maybe Michael Flynn Jr. were involved potentially in a $15 million deal to arrange for the potentially uh, extra-legal rendition of, uh, Fat- uh, I don't remember his full first name, but a cleric, Gulen, um, in a Turkish cleric who is in exile in Pennsylvania, right? I think Fatullah Gulen, um, back to Turkey. This is unbelievable. It, it now, is, now, we knew the, unbelievable. We, now, we knew the story in general. The yeah, novelty yeah. here was the, okay, it's going to be $15 million, and, and either it's going to be some sort of facilitated, uh, true, extraordinary rendition-type scenario, or it's going to be an exercise of bribed influence within the administration to do it through formal legal channels. Yeah, we're going to bribe you to somehow override the Justice Department's normal application of our extradition treaty with Turkey. 
either way, this doesn't end well for Michael Flynn. And one of the twists we'll get to, you know, we'll talk about when we get there. Um, this might also, in addition to being various federal crimes, be a crime under New York state law. Or Pennsylvania. Well, New York well, is where the media oh, happened. Okay, but both, right? You can Maybe say both, that, right? um, which obviously are beyond the scope of the president's pardon No, power. That's, that's a huge factor and certainly not lost, most likely, at least on uh, the New York authorities who we can anticipate. Maybe the, the Pennsylvania authorities, although that raises an interesting question. Who's the attorney general in uh, Pennsylvania? What about uh, divisions of authority yep. in the Pennsylvania system? With, this, is why I think with New York is, this is why I think New York is more interesting because Eric Schneiderman already is on record as being a big fan of this administration. Big, big fan. <laughs> um, All right, which brings us, uh, speaking of things this administration is doing, our last thing, we will check in with John Doe. Yeah, we're, we're going to call him. Right, John Doe, the enemy combatant who's being held in incommunicado military detention in Iraq. And just just to be clear, we don't actually have any great insights because nothing's <laughs> really happened since last we spoke, other than the filing of the government's uh, responsive brief. So what, what, there's been some, there was some confusion involving a, a Defense Department uh, press statement, but we'll we'll, we'll go, go over all that. It's right, I, mean, I think the larger headline is that here we are, two months past when yeah. John Doe was taken into U.S. custody, yeah. and nothing has happened. Well, so. Not to jump into too soon, but what's happening is there's an ongoing legal process unfolding, and the government filed its brief last week. We're soon going to hear. That's how these things work. Uh, We have a great trivia segment for the end, so do bear with us because should we even should we say now? Yeah, why? Why? why, Otherwise, might not stick around. Staying with last week's movie theme, Steve. Let's talk about our what we think the all-time great sequels. And, and we and, and we'll also talk about what we mean by a sequel because I think there's some disagreement out there in the world. It'll affect our choices. You know, I think there's a whole discussion in Scream Three about like whether Scream Three is technically a sequel. Oh, is that right? It's very I've meta. Not seen the screams. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so if you stay around long enough, you'll hear our three favorite sequels. And Bobby also maybe uh, one sequel you might not want to. Maybe out. maybe the worst sequel of all worst time. Worst sequels of all time. All right. Um, so why don't we dive in, starting off the bat with the. Uh, on banc foreign intelligence surveillance court. So why don't we start with what this case was actually about? Right. So if you go back to the Snowden revelations, um, obviously one thing this revealed to the public back in summer 2013, four four years ago, Steve, unbelievable. Um, We're old. Among the many things you learn is not only were various programs uh, taking place, but there there were various kinds of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court rulings relating to some of these programs, including the Section 215 metadata program. And as soon as that fact is out there, that there are these opinions the public hadn't seen, um, there are efforts that begin to try to get disclosure of these opinions, or at least disclosure of the legal analysis components of the opinion. As much of the opinions as can be disclosed without compromising national security. And to make a long and boring procedural story short, there's some back and forth because while litigation to try to pull those opinions out uh, is taking place, there are voluntary disclosures from the DNI putting some of these opinions out there. I think ultimately there's four opinions in total that are an issue, Um, but but not everything, right? Uh, so long story short, you've got the ACLU and the Yale, uh, what'd you call it? The Mafia, Mafia Clinic? The, <laughs> gives you the wrong idea. The, the Media Freedom and Information Access Clinic. Uh, they've got litigation underway. Steve, is this correct? Not as a Freedom of Information Act request, but going directly to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court under the rules of procedure of that court, asking for review and uh, declassification, and or further review, further declassification, right. and, and argue, disclosure. And arguing that there's both a statutory and a constitutional right of public access to as much of the opinions as, you know, don't need to be classified in the interest of national security. Exactly. So the key, I think the, the key merits issue, and we'll talk about where the merits fits in here, the key merits to their claim is a claim under the First Amendment under the Richmond Newspapers rule, this idea that Richmond Newspapers established as a general proposition. This is a Supreme Court case from 1980. Yes, Supreme Court ruling that in general, um, there is a First Amendment public right of access involving the media and, and so forth to criminal proceedings. And then there's been lower court rulings to try to figure out, okay, where does that extend to? Where does it go? What we're presented with here is, is that true? Does it extend to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court? And you can see why, you know, the government, you can be expecting them to say, well, no, because this is this is a presumptively not public proceeding. But on the other hand, you can see the public's interest. So uh, the doctrine calls for sort of a two-step analysis. The, the FISA court judge that first has to resolve this, uh, Rosemary Collier, uh, decides against ACLU and the Yale Mafia Clinic. Back in January. 
styling that as a, as a standing analysis, Boo. which gets Steve going. I'm going to turn it over to you shortly here to, to actually explain how this all works. Um, but it's a standing analysis finding that there's not an injury in fact, specifically because there's not a legally cognizable interest here. And, and of course, that leads to what the uh, ACLU and, and uh, Yale students all say is a premature analysis of the merits on the Richmond newspapers issue. And Steve, uh, a hot division of all the FISA court judges, six to five on whether that was right or not. Collier's reversed by her colleagues here. Indeed. So, I mean, I guess to, to back up one second, right? I mean, I think what, what Judge Collier held in January in an opinion that was released, ironically, um, well, I guess it would have been ironic if it hadn't been released, um, right? Is right. that because the ACLU and the Mafia Clinic could not make out a colorable First Amendment claim they couldn't really allege the kind of injury that gives rise to Article Three standing. Um, I, I sort of tweeted about this back in January, that this is conflating, as much as I've ever seen anyone conflate, standing and the merits, right? The standing question is whether the complaint, if true, alleges a violation, um, with, alleges an injury in fact, alleges that the injury was caused by the party being sued, and alleges facts that, if true, would make for a redressable claim, right? Injury in fact, causation, redressability. Um, you know, the, we don't usually decide whether you're right on the merits to decide if they're standing. We usually say, if you're right on the merits, would you be injured within the meaning of Article 3? Otherwise, you're putting the cart before the horse. So what we had last Thursday is we had, as you say, a 6-5 to five decision by the full FISA court, the lower court, um, basically overruling Judge Collier and saying, that's right, right? The standing is not about whether there's a viable claim on the merits. Standing is about whether assuming a viable claim on the merits, this is the right kind of lawsuit to address that claim. So the, the majority goes out of its way to say up front, we're not saying this is going anywhere on the merits. And then deep within the majority's opinion, there's a reference to the fact that uh, Judge McLaughlin and yep. Judge Bates have both previously held on the merits. Yep. There is no Richmond newspaper's right of access to right. these proceedings. Right. And and I take it, I didn't I didn't dig it up to see if those two opinions, where they were procedurally, but I assume they were dismissed for failure to state a claim. Yes. And so I think my reaction to this was, okay, that sounds right. They, they have standing from an injury in fact perspective, but the government should be able to quickly get dismissal for failure to state a claim under the Richmond newspaper doesn't run here theory. Yeah, I guess I just wonder. I mean, so, so you know, the I wonder if the developments – so I don't remember the timing of the Bates and McLaughlin opinions. I think at least one of them was before Snowden. 08 and 07. Right. They're both before Snowden. Oh, yeah. And I think there's an argument that the Richmond newspaper's analysis is changed at least to some degree by two things that have happened since those opinions. One is the far greater public awareness and understanding of – FISA proceedings of the FISA court of FISA opinions, and two are the provisions of the USA Freedom Act of 2015, which actually theoretically are supposed to nudge the FISA court toward more transparency. I don't think those are conclusive under Richmond newspapers, mm-hmm. but I do think it's you know sufficient justification for revisiting the matter on the merits. Um, and let me just say, I mean, it's not actually, I think, black and white that Richmond newspapers applies to criminal proceedings and doesn't apply to civil proceedings. Um, there are some civil contexts where courts have applied Richmond newspapers, or at least a variation thereof. We've talked, I think, way back in the early days of this podcast about a D.C. Circuit decision where Judge Randolph wrote this one-judge concurrence that I had real problems with, saying that there was no Richmond newspaper's right of access to Guantanamo habeas petitions. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, um, I think I, I think he's wrong. Um, right? And so there's— well, there, habeas seems, you know, very different. But also, I mean, the other point to say is, you know, I, I don't mean to get too far into the weeds here, but the whole constitutional justification for the FISA court is that it's ancillary to criminal proceedings. Now, we've talked before about how that analogy has really broken down, right, about how especially in the context of bulk collection of phone records of 702, that is not what the FISA court's doing. It's not issuing warrants ancillary to subsequent criminal proceedings. You're saying that because that addresses the possible uh, case or controversy Indeed, issue? Right, the, that, right. So, right. So the, there were concerns raised actually by Larry Silberman, of all people, um, later Fisk Review and D.C. Circuit judge, that FISA itself was unconstitutional because the Fisk was exercising power um, beyond the case or controversy requirement. The response at the time, which was offered, I think, most cogently by John Harmon, then the assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel, was, no, I want to say Mark Harmon, but it's John Harmon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know whether to insert a naval CIS reference or a moonlighting reference. Yes. Um, anyway, Harmon's response, I think, is right, 
is that warrants have always been understood to be within the power of federal judges insofar as they're ancillary to subsequent criminal proceedings. And all FISA, at least initially, allowed the FISA court to do was issue warrants. Here's an interesting question. If if one thinks that, to get into the weeds of that issue, yeah. which I think is actually a hugely important structural issue most people don't pay attention to, if in fact the whole Fisk project is problematic from a case or controversy perspective, it seems to me that a sort of a hydraulic effect or impact of that is to greatly bolster the claim that there has to be a foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement. I agree with that. But I think you could also argue that it also bolsters the case for a special advocate, right, to create adverseness so that you don't have this one side. Anyway, but yeah, right. The, yeah. The re- but anyway, the reason why this matters here, right, to get back to last Thursday's ruling is because whether you buy the, the sort of ancillary to the proceeding argument or not, um, the FISA court is, I think, much more of a criminal proceeding than a civil proceeding, mm. right? That that the whole theory of the FISA court is that it's issuing warrants that aren't necessarily to be used in criminal cases, but that are certainly much more like. You know, I have, I have to admit, cases. even though I think this 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 sort of characterization I'm about to give strengthens the case of critics who say there's no case for controversy because that that is a fiction. Of course it is. It's 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 a preposterous fiction. It was a fiction in 1978. But it, but it's revealed over time in practice to be a completely uh, talk about the tail wagging the dog. Someone should write an article about this. Maybe call the FISA court in Article Three. Mm, I don't know. That sounds kind of boring. You got to yeah. jazz it up. Maybe the Washington Only Law Review might you know be dumb enough to publish it. Is that what happened to you? Yeah, that's what happened to me. <laughs> um, but so anyway, all this is to say so. I guess I'm saying that I am more sympathetic to the First Amendment claim, right, insofar as I think it is quite pr- – the, the ACLU is not saying, dear FISA court, open up your doors, right? We want to come to the arguments. We want to, you know, see all your documents. They're saying redact, review and redact. What, what about – okay, what about – to get to the merits, what yeah. about the fact that there these opinions have been reviewed and redacted and published already? They're asking for re-review, yeah. right? So some of them have been, right? I mean, I think there are some opinions that we know about but that have never been published. And I think there's also um, – I think there's an allegation in the original filing that there might also be opinions we don't even know exist. And I think the argument is that the very, you know, the government should have a First Amendment obligation to disclose with redactions. Mm. Well, yes, but then there's the question of once they've done that, yeah. why do you get to go back to the well with one they've already it's done? It's a fair question, and I, and I don't know the answer. I mean, yeah. I think, right, so, so that's where things get messy. Um, one also wonders if this would be an interesting interesting fodder for some kind of appellate review, right? The prop, well, right, so, so I think the government presumably is going to consider trying to take this to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. The so Fisker. I don't know. I mean, so here's an interesting strategic question, right? Um, the government, if they take it to Fisker, right, um, risks the, I think, I think raises the specter of, makes much more possible the, the, the prospect of Supreme Court review. Right. Interesting. So if Fisker goes the other way, and I, this, I think because of the fact that you've got opinions here that have already been reviewed yeah. and, and re- released in partially redacted form, mm-hmm. unless there really are definitely other opinions that, that the government should be reviewing and isn't, and they could, and the government could kill off that issue by saying, hey, Odie and I just submitted a letter saying we're reviewing them right. now. So I think it's safe for them to go to the Fisker if it looks like it could create an issue because of some ultra-narrow But why not wait on, until you lose before us? Because now what will happen is this goes back to individual Fisk judges, right? on a case by case basis to Collier for this one for right? this one but I mean the, the sort of the broader right the broader on in each case right because one fisk judge doesn't bind another fisk judge right district judges don't bind district judges right but they'll be bound by the en banc here only on the standing question right? right so now all this means is that individual fisk judges will have to decide in each case is there a viable Richmond newspapers claim here. And so I'll predict for you what's going to happen here. It's going to go back to Collier. The government will move to dismiss for failure to state a claim. And she'll grant it. And she'll grant it, and it won't get reversed. And that's well, it can't get, I mean, it can't get appealed. So this is where I was going, right. right? So the government is allowed to appeal within the Fisk system. There is no mechanism for an outside party like ACLU to appeal, right? All they could do is seek a writ of mandamus. Is that constitutional? If they have standing and they they have a ruling against them and they there's no appeal, you don't have it, a, you don't necessarily have a constitutional right to an appeal. But it can't get to the Supreme Court that way. Yeah, I mean, so that well, is it a, okay. So Fed courts we, maritime. We're reversed roles. I'm trying to force judicial involvement now. So so it, it, it's not that the Supreme Court completely lacks jurisdiction, right? Insofar as the Supreme Court has appellate jurisdiction over Fisk and Fisker, it should follow the Supreme Court can issue a writ of mandamus. Okay, so so there could be. 
be that. But, I mean, the bar for a writ of mandamus, <laughs> especially to a court the Supreme Court has never reviewed in its history, oh, yeah. um, no, I they're think not is gonna, high. And they're certainly not going to grab the, the Richmond newspapers issue for this. No, although, I mean, I, I, they wouldn't grab the Richmond newspapers issue. I think the one thing that they might find interesting is if the standing. Fisker is screwing up standing. Yeah, I think that's, that's, true. that's and true. And that's why if I'm the government, I'm actually not necessarily running to Fisker. Because you can go ahead and win these cases on the merits. Right. It's not It's not until I lose a case on the merits that I actually might want to relitigate the standing question. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, all this is to say, um, what an interesting thing to happen from the FISC. You know, there's some, yeah. fight about, there's some fight about whether it's the first or the second time it's ever sat on Bonk. So there, if you remember, right, the, the, the first ever Fisker ruling was a 2002 decision called In Ray Sealed Case, mm-hmm. which was itself a government appeal right. of a decision it's by all 11... Fisk judges. Yeah. So why didn't that count as the first on bond? So there are, you know, this is this is where the Twitter laundered pedantry just just I think goes to the highest possible level. Um, there's a, there's someone was trying to suggest that the court did not technically sit on bonk in the case known as In Ray All Matters Submitted to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. It was just Judge Lambert with like the and he sort of ran it by all the other judges and they all said we're down with it. Yeah, tomato, tomato. That's what I say. <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's call that one off. Well, because your day your day really depends upon whether this was the first or the second time. My friends, this is the sort of thing Steve and I sit around at night talking about. It's better than talking oh, about like, woe is us. tax cuts. All right, let's make it even more interesting. Let's talk about uh, Jeff Sessions and this uh, curious letter. Um, nutshell version, why should we not be alarmed about the suggestion that there ought to be another special counsel this time to get to the truth of Uranium One. Which, oh, my gosh. Oh, I, I got to say, just as long as I have your ear here, uh, Uranium One, let's be clear about this: co- the, the company, the Canadian company that, that sold the interest to the Russians. My understanding is largely based on Paul Rosenzweig's excellent summary and basically debunking of the conspiracy yeah, theory here. Yeah, but Paul's here. a crazy liberal. Well, exactly. So Paul, former Bush administration DHS official um, at Lawfare, has a great post kind of summarizing the issues. And among other things you learn is that it is clear under the law, both before and after the sale, that uranium mined in the United States can't just be taken out. No one's taken any uranium anywhere. Can the revenue from selling it be taken out? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, so but the idea that this was giving away our uranium to the Russians is is a. misstatement. <laughs> to okay, say so, the least. Now, but nonetheless, there, there was talk of a special counsel, Steve, and, and you think that Jeff Sessions is not signaling here that, yes, we're going to do that, but rather the opposite? Well, so let's back up a step, right? So so I do think that there is some blame to be leveled at certain House Republicans um, who I think have been stoking the flames of this, Bobby, I say, I think non-controversy, no, right? It's, it's, it's a fake conspiracy theory. But I mean, so there, there were a pair of letters sent by uh, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlatte um, and several of his colleagues um, to Sessions demanding an investigation into Uranium One, into the Hillary Clinton email scandal, right? Into sort of basically every possible basis, the Clinton Foundation's financial transactions overseas. I mean, like every yeah. possible thing that might. So a whataboutism letter. Oh, my gosh. All right. Um, The reason why we have to start with those letters is because what happened on Monday was a formal response by the Justice Department to those letters. Right. Which in itself... Nothing unusual about that. No, especially, so the especially the matters. day, especially the day before the, the day before you testify. Well, that's why before the he, before the House Judiciary. Yeah, Committee. so of course he writes back. Right. What does he so, say? So the letter, um, the letter says a lot, which is unusual, right? So the first thing folks notice is that it's it's a long letter. It's actually not by Sessions, right? It's by one of his under you know assistant attorneys general. Okay. Um, which I think by by itself was a statement. Um, right. 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 There's a little distancing there. Right. Um, and the letter basically says, "We hear you." Right. Mm -hmm. And session says, or the letter says, I am going to uh, uh, the attorney general and with the deputy attorney general as appropriate. Right. Sort of a nod Mm -hmm. to the fact Mm -hmm. that sessions might be recused on some of this stuff um, is going to uh, uh, instruct uh, senior federal prosecutors to look into the claims that Mm -hmm. the House Republicans want them to look into and to take action as appropriate, which might include and then the letter lays out the possibilities. Right. It might include. Um. Pursuing charges that haven't been brought, it might include um, revising charges right to an, invest in, uh, invest in, an existing investigation, adding resources to an existing investigation, or appointing a new special counsel. That was the letter, right. um, and the internet went berserk. Of course, and, and it understandably, 
people aren't down in the weeds. They just hear this letter's been issued, and it sounds like it's a it's a warning, right? It sounds like it's a herald telling you these things could happen. But of course, well, we've, and we've had a year and a half of blocker up, right? And so I think there yeah. are folks who sort of re- say, oh, well, if, if the Justice Department is actually specifically saying we might appoint a second special counsel, right? It must be so. And I guess my reading of the letter is um, a little more sort of uh, uh, in the middle, right? Which is to say, I see the letter as saying. Dear guys, you know, dear House Republican peoples, you guys are causing trouble for me, right? Um, obviously, I'm not going to investigate Hillary just because she's Hillary, right? Um, we'll do what we do. Yeah. You know, what? Here's here's some of the things that we could do if we find something, right? I'm not promising anything. None of it promises anything. Leave me alone. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the I think that's the fairest reading. Yeah, so the, 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 some of my friends to the left, right, Matt Miller, former Obama DOJ official, um, thought that the letter was still inappropriate because it was a lot more sort of, it sort of took the, it accepted the premise, right, that there was something to look into. Um, and it sort of promised, right, a commitment of DOJ resources, even if it's just like to run down whether there's a there there in a way that no prior DOJ would have publicly acknowledged, right, that it's sort of caving in at least a bit to the, you know, look into whether we should lock her sure. up. Yeah, no, and I, I, I see that and I understand what, certainly why one would feel that way, but I think we have to kind of take into account the reality of the completely through the looking glass, tail of the comet sort of world we're living in in 2017. And from that light, this actually isn't necessarily the big red flag people. No, to, I mean, to the contrary. I mean, I wrote, as you know, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post um, late Monday night, Tuesday morning that actually tried to walk people off the ledge a bit and yeah. say, you know, listen, guys, yes, it would be really, really bad if we started prosecuting people for partisan political reasons. Of course. I just don't think that this that's what this letter protests. Right, yeah. I hope no one listening to us thinks that we're saying, like, eh, it'd be all right. No! No, no, we're, we're trying to say quite the opposite. But we also think that, or I think, and I think you agree, I, oh, yeah. that there's, there's some amount of, uh, you have to take the perspective, this is Jeff Sessions. It's the Sessions Justice Department. He's got it. He's operating in a particular environment, and from that baseline, this is pretty innocuous. And one last thing, just before we move on. Well, and, and then I have a sort of totally tangential point. Um, I can't wait. But right, the, from Sessions' perspective, Right. It's also the case, I think, that a standard perfunctory, we don't discuss investigations, leave us alone letter would have actually produced the opposite reaction, which is it would have ratcheted up absolutely the sort of blowback from congressional Republicans and from President Trump that actually would have had the opposite effect. Exactly. It would have been it would have been harmful. It would have generated more pushback, by, more political interference. By responding this way, it's non-committal, but it, it provides plenty of political cover for those who sent the letter to let it lie and feel like they were heard. Yeah, I actually think this is one of the most sort of nuanced things yep. that have come out of the front office, the yeah, political I, operation I, I totally agree. Um, one last point just before we're done with sessions, um, just because I can't resist the sort of craven, crass politics of this. My favorite sort of, and by favorite I mean horrified, um, 2017 story of the week is this grand plot that everyone's figured out um, that if Roy Moore somehow still wins the election on December 12th, um, he will you know, sort of step aside or the Senate will expel him. And then the governor of Alabama will appoint the seat's former occupant, <laughs> Jeff Sessions, and then we get a new attorney general. And we got a new recused, attorney general who's new, not recused, uh, right? Yeah, uh, it, you know, all things are possible. Yeah, but after. actually, but a Sessions spokesperson specifically said uh, return to the Senate is not something the attorney general is considering. Yeah, no, I think that nothing like that's going to happen. First of all, I don't think Roy Moore is going to win this thing. You know. There's no scenario in which Roy Moore should win this election, but Bobby, it's 2017. I know, I know, but you know, when when even Ivanka Trump is coming out against you, that's pretty strong. Yeah, but the president hasn't. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, the number of people, the number of public officials, um, not that many federal officials, but the number of state officials in Alabama who in the last week have said um, they would rather have a pedophile represent them in the Senate than a Democrat. Oh, yeah. Some people have lost their souls on this one, if you ask me. But let's move on. This, on on to, this one? Well, this one is <laughs> one where I'm willing to say that. How about that? Is that good enough? All right. So speaking of losing your soul, should we talk about the NDAA? Uh, there's nothing soul-sucking about the just, NDAA just, except just, for just, those who just, had to just, work on just, it. I was going to say, just reading it. Just reading it. Those who had to produce it. And if any of you staffers are listening, God we love you. you. We love you. Um, we're going to highlight a few things here. So as, as always in recent years, there's a Guantanamo transfer section. I believe it's almost entirely the usual stuff. Um, Two things I want to highlight. Section 1033 
Oh, wait, Steve, let me back up and just make sure everyone knows. It's not signed into law yet. The conference report is what we're talking about. And, and just to be clear, the conference report, right, is the bill as agreed to by the conference yes. committee to reconcile the House and Senate exactly. versions. So it this would, is a done deal. This is a done deal. It would take some pretty... The House has already signed off on the conference report, right. and, and the Senate will soon. The Senate will soon, and it would take some real extraordinary last-minute craziness for this not to be the bill that gets signed into Agreed. Law. So this will this will all become law soon. Uh, Section 1033 is the usual no expenditure of funds to transfer any Gitmo detainees to the U.S. Um, one thing that I believe is already there, it's there again, and I hadn't noticed before, but I'm thinking about it because of our guy John Doe, uh-huh. the American citizen uh, detained as an enemy combatant in Iraq. Um, that provision apparently, at least in recent years, has always excluded U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. So in theory, you could remove John Doe from Iraq, still have him in enemy combatant status. You could take him to Guantanamo for further process, and then at some point still, without a hurdle under this law, yeah, yeah. still bring him into the United States. Oh, sure. I, I don't think the transfer restrictions were ever part of the no Guantanamo calculus. I think it was the sort of Bush administration's original understanding that you risk opening the door to far greater procedural protections for right. the non-citizens. And of course, that ship sailed a decade ago. Yeah, but you know, well, ships and sailing, those are good metaphors for this for this conversation. Indeed, indeed. Slow boats and all that. Uh, uh, okay, so there's 1033, just a little note there about how you could use Guantanamo rather than this undisclosed Mm -hmm. location, presumably in Kurdistan somewhere. Uh, Section 1035, you may know this, I do not. Um, This is the rule on how you can't transfer Guantanamo detainees to other locations. This time at least, and maybe it did this before, it names four countries, Libya, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen. I don't know that we had a specific listing before. Maybe we did, and sorry for not doing the due diligence. I don't remember such a list. I feel like I would have remembered it as well. Yeah. So anyways, it's interesting there. It says a flat prohibition on those four. Maybe uh, there was, oh, you know what? Wait, hold on a second. Maybe there was, and it wasn't, yeah. and it was a, lar- a longer list. A longer I, list? Yeah. Anyway. Anyways, that, so 1035 is worth a look. Um, but never mind all that. Uh, Guantanamo, so that's so 2015. Wait, there, wait, I've got one more Guantanamo provision. Oh, you do? Before we move on to stuff that actually right. matters. Okay. Um, so I'm sure that everyone was waiting and with bated breath for page 805, <laughs> right, of the conference board, section 1802, um, which is titled, Clarification of Applicability of Certain Provisions of Law to Civilian Judges of the U.S. Court of Military Commission oh. Review. <laughs> what so, does it say? Um, so we've talked before about the military judge problem on the CMCR and the Dalmazi case that uh-huh. I'm arguing in the Supreme Court in January. Although when in January, I still don't know. Come on, Supreme Court. Got to buy those tickets. Any day now. It'd be nice to know. Did we talk about how we should... I'm going to come up there. I want to see this. Heckle. So I can heckle you. Yeah. But also, maybe while we're up there, we can do a live recording of the show. Ooh, maybe during the oral argument. Maybe we'll wait till afterwards. Yeah, maybe we'll wait till afterwards. All right. Um, oh, my. We've had some fun guests if we did a... Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Anyway, so um, one of the issues that had arisen with the CMCR, having nothing to do with the military officer judges, which are the heart of Dalmazi, had to do with the civilian judges um, and the fact that civilian judges are basically part-time, right, judges because the CMCR just doesn't have that much work, right? Um, and, <laughs> well, put it mildly. Yeah. Um, and there is a federal statute that prohibits federal employees from engaging in the outside practice of law, right? So this goes back to sort of a concern that federal, that, that you'd be, you have sort of patronage jobs where guys were just sort of, you know, checking the box in the morning and then going to their law firm in the afternoon. So is the idea here that like somebody like Scott Silliman, mm-hmm. who's a civilian judge on the court, shouldn't be practicing law under that statute yes. on the side? Yes. Now, so, that probably wouldn't matter for him. I don't think he represents clients. No, no, but, but I think well, at least one or two of the other, you know, civilian judges might. Um, mm. And and I think, I mean, you know, depending on how capaciously you interpret practicing law, right, it's possible that even teaching or doctrine. <laughs> I, I, I definitely don't think teaching counts. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so um, this actually was an issue brought to the D.C. Circuit. We talked way back when about the mandamus jurisprudence of the D.C. Circuit. The military commission cases um, in Qatar uh, in 2016, um, I think it's Judge Kavanaugh, right, gets a mandamus petition challenging whether civilian judges are violating 18 U.S.C. Section 203. That's the statute. And he writes an opinion that says, oh, well, you can't, reach, you can't make um, out a claim for mandamus because this is a question of first impression. We don't do that oh, sort yeah, of thing. Right, right. But there's another one of these, but this actually is a problem. Somebody should fix it. And someone should fix it. And somebody's fixing it. And somebody's fixing it. So Congress in Section 1802, uh, no, 1082, sorry, yeah, yeah. of the um, FY 2018 NDAA is fixing the provision and is expressly authorizing civilian judges on the CMCR Ooh, okay. to engage in the private practice of law. That's actually, it's that's it's nice to see the interbranch dialogue actually producing a result. I completely agree, especially when there's no fix for my problem. 
So, no, right? So, <laughs> right. so, so, if someone at the oral argument says, "Well, you know, Mr. Vladik, you know, if this were such a problem, why didn't Congress just fix it?" And I can say, "Well, Congress clearly is paying attention to the military commissions. That's right. They fix the other problem. And Maybe this problem this? can't be fixed. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't want to fix it, Justice Gorsuch." <laughs> Oh, I cannot wait to watch this. This is gonna be great. I'm gonna try really hard. I'll Not turn off. The, I'll turn off my ringer on my cell phone. Yeah, you can't bring a cell phone I. into the Supreme Court. What's what's that sound you played for me that one time? The shame, the bell of shame, or something like that. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> shame. <laughs> I will try not to do shame. that during your oral argument. I guess the marshals shame. would. And this is, by the way, a shout out to uh, my students Lucy Lifer and Kelly Nordling for introducing me to Very the nice. shame bell. All right, so what else is in the NDAA? There's a ton of cybersecurity stuff. I blogged about it at great length on Lawfare the other day. Um, Let me just flag two things since one of them we talked about before. Uh, The original uh, version, I believe the Senate version, although I could have that backwards, had a remarkable provision that appeared to call for um, the U.S. government to reach out to foreign governments if we were planning an operation that was going to affect have effects in their territory um, and to basically get permission unless there was an unwilling or unable situation. And this had prompted Secretary of Defense Mattis to issue a, a so-called heartburn letter saying this needs to come out. And um, that was an interesting issue. And what's really interesting is Congress listened. It is gone. So forget about that issue. Score one for the SecDef. Uh, what is still in there, um, there's a provision that is the latest in sort of what I would describe as the long-running project, particularly of UT Law's own Mac Thornberry, to build out the oversight architecture on the House and Senate Armed Services Committee side in parallel to the existing covert action oversight architecture that the intelligence committees have. It's something he's been doing for years in relation to so-called sensitive military operations, which are outside the combat zone kill capture missions. Um, Here, it's sensitive uh, military cyber operations, SMCOs. And the basic idea is in section 1631, we have a new oversight architecture, the details of which boil down to the idea that the Secretary of Defense, when conducting, when DOD has conducted, and it has to be DOD, when DOD has conducted a special or sensitive military cyber operation, there must be reporting and writing within 48 hours to the Armed Services Committees So it's like covert action notifications in that respect. What triggers this? In all military, so Title X, military cyber activity that is either offensive in nature or if it's defensive, it's got to be seeking to have an effect. Let me back up. It has to be an operation that has an, it seeks to have an effect outside of a combat zone. And it either must be offensive in nature or defensive, but designed to uh, put a stop or to defeat an ongoing or, or, or looming uh, threat to the DOD information network. So it's it's very similar to the kill capture sensitive military operation idea, but it's getting at this this notion that a lot of cyber operations that Cybercom may need to conduct or may have been conducting may affect servers in other locations. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, the Hill, or at least the Armed Services Committee, want to be looped in so that they know. Now, there's a a companion part within that same Section 1631. It's also pretty interesting, Steve. The military conducts weapons reviews uh, for all sorts of weapons they long have. What does that mean? We're talking here about legal review for LOAC compliance, law of armed conflict compliance. And possibly other forms of legal compliance, certainly other forms of international law. And it looks like the uh, Hask and Sask folks have reason to think or have decided that there could be an issue with what's going on there in terms of how the legal analysis of how international law affects these cyber weapons is unfolding. They're asking for uh, a, a quarterly report that collects all the international law assessments from the weapons review process for cyber weapons. Uh, and they're also asking for notification within, I think, 48 hours mm-hmm. when any of those weapons then get used in anger, if you will, not training, not not something else. Um, so one final thing to mention under the same theme, they also have amended the existing requirement under 10 U.S. Code Section 484, which already requires quarterly briefings from the Defense Department to those committees on cyber operations in general. They've, they've clarified how this is going to work in that it has to be done on a command-by-command basis. So the regional commands, the functional commands, which, of course, 
gets you to Cybercom, which is critical, there needs to be reporting about particular operations on a quarterly basis, including legal and policy issues that were raised. So they're, they're trying to learn more about what is it that gets Cybercom in particular tangled up from an international law perspective. Pretty interesting stuff, Quite. But, but probably not interesting to con- enough to continue talking about it. <laughs> so let's uh, wake up our listeners, Steve. Let's talk about nuclear weapons. Oi. All right, so, what happened? So the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yesterday had a hearing that I don't think any of us would have expected it to have, you know, as recently as, I don't know, 11, 13 months ago. Um, and the basic subject of the hearing was if the president um, orders a preemptive nuclear strike on North Korea, can anyone stop him? That's sort of a, an interesting prompt for a, a Senate hearing. Jim Mattis. Well, so that was the so the the one of the witnesses I think who was the former uh, general in charge of uh, strategic U.S. strategic command, right? So the guy who actually would have been in the in the room where it happened, um, basically said um, if the order was illegal, it could be refused, right? And it would be illegal if it didn't comply with law of armed conflict principles like proportionality and you know all that other good necessity distinction, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, the generals in fact would refuse such an order. So don't worry about it; it's all good. Well, you know that all that sounds right. It sounds it's chilling good. and sounds right. Um, <laughs> did they, Steve? Did they say anything about sort of like when? When is it proper to initiate the use of force at the president's sole discretion? Not Article really. Two stuff. No. Oh, too bad. I, I like that topic. Um, and as you know, I think it lurks in the background all these UNF years. I, mean, I, I think waiting. there's also just a question about whether there's anything Congress could do, right, to require. You know, I mean, there's the there's the old two man rule, right? That yeah. you know the president needs someone in the civilian chain of command yeah. to sign off on so an order. Doesn't that it raises a commander in chief issue, doesn't it? If you were yeah. to say that this particular weapon system, president doesn't have ultimate. Command. Well, let's also be clear that right. I mean, um, if that statute were ever violated, no one would be around to to worry about it. <laughs> well, there is that, but it's still important that we lawyers, especially the academic ones, <laughs> that we debate these issues academically. <laughs> If not us, who? If not now, when? Well, if not now, when? I think is the right is the right way to put it. So, so I, I vote for never. Let's never. Just, All right. Let's just defer this to to hopefully the twelfth. Turn never. the clock back from midnight a couple of minutes. Please. Um, speaking of things that really ought never to be serious topics of conversation, <laughs> um, should we talk about the um, former national security advisor's apparent role in a conspiracy to commit kidnapping? So the, you guys did a great Lawfare podcast on this the other night with the best title ever. What was it? Uh, a person of flinterest. Person of flinterest. That's gold. That's pretty good. Do you, who who did that? Was that Ben? I think that Season? might have been that might have been Herr Professor Wittes. Oh, uh, well done, sirs. Um, all right. So uh, what is the key takeaway here? I mean, it's so it's kind of obvious, right? That this is a conspiracy, if true. Let's. The, if true, if true, this is a, a number of crimes. Uh, Paul Rosenzweig's portion of that podcast enumerated <laughs> several the of them. Shockingly long list. You you went deep on the Foreign Agents Registration Act. T- to me, the really interesting thing here is the thing we foreshadowed during the intro to the show um, that these aren't all just federal crimes we're talking about. So I think that I actually would say there are two interesting things, right? One is these aren't all federal crimes, which means this actually could be a scenario where we'd be beyond the scope of the president's pardon power. President lacks the power to pardon state offenses, right? And so a state like New York or potentially Pennsylvania that might be interested in pursuing charges, you know, could theoretically do so free of of the federal government. Bobby, I actually think the other piece of this that's not getting enough attention is um, for the first time, again, if the Wall Street Journal story is true, for the first time, here is evidence of potential criminality that would have required post-January 20th action. Right, right. And so that's, that addresses some of the, the objections or, or criticisms of talk of ca- illegal campaign influence, trying to connect that to actions in office. Yep. So here well, you're beginning to see a tie. You also have the, the statute that says you can't be a federal officer while you're an agent of a foreign power. Well, that's critical, right? And right. that's the thing he's most on the hook for. Oh, right? I think, I mean, listen, I, I think, I don't think there's any question at this point that Michael Flynn is in serious, serious legal jeopardy. Um, I think his son, if he really was at the meeting and was part of this conversation, mm-hmm. could also be in a different kind of legal jeopardy. And can you have, I assume the answer must be yes, under 18 U.S. Code Section 5, conspiracy to violate the you can't be a foreign agent at the time that you're an office holder? I assume so, but I'm not sure it would matter, right? Because you have conspiracy to commit kidnapping, right? I mean, I, right? I mean, yeah, well, yeah, but that's a different then. It's an interesting question. Is there any way in which he could be guilty of the one and not the other? Sure, right? I mean, so so if the if all that Flynn said mm-hmm. was I will not I will not render him, 
right? I will right, only, right, right. I will only right. put, I will, I will bring okay. every single ounce so of pressure yeah. that I can to bear on the Justice I'm Department. I'm your man. I'm your fifteen million dollar right. man. I'm your fifteen million dollar man. Well, that would have been a good title, the fifteen million dollar man. I think that's the title of this episode. <laughs> um, so, right, I am, I am the guy who will go to DOJ and say, you know, dear Office of International Affairs, right, which is the DOJ office that handles this, this stuff. Um, you know, I don't care about procedural technicalities, right? Turkey's going to request the extradition of this guy. I want it to happen. I want it to happen fast. I don't want any noise about it. I don't want any trouble. And then he jumps in his Maserati and peels out. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that would, I think, no, that would unquestionably be conspiracy to violate Section 219. Mm-hmm. Um, it would actually, I think, be a violation of 219 if he right. did anything after January 20th to... Right. Well, that's why. Fruition. That's kind of why I want to go to conspiracy on yeah. that is to capture the possibility that you know maybe this was not completed. Yeah, it might, no, it may not have been. I mean, but but you can bet your bottom dollar, or you can bet all fifteen million of your bottom dollars. <laughs> Leave it to the funds. Um, that that Bob Mueller is looking into it. Oh yeah, and probably Eric some, Schneiderman. Yeah, and another thing, it's not just the pardon power doesn't extend. If the special counsel is rolled up yep. and, and tossed out, yep. the state officials, the state law enforcement oh, yeah. officials, still there. So, so I think I mean we've we've talked before. So the, another point to make here, though, is right. We've talked before about how I've always thought for Mike Flynn, the far more obvious source of legal jeopardy is not Russia; it's Turkey. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. here we go again. Well, it's more well documented. Yep. Okay. Um, last week we promised we'd check in with John Doe. We we kind of did. John, are you there? No, he's not. He's in Iraq right now. Uh, <laughs> I'll get back to you. <laughs> so the long and short of it is. Um, Time continues to pass. Boo. Um, what one of us has been arguing that the more time goes, actually, we've both been arguing the more time goes on, the, the harder this case yeah, becomes. You can't, you can't kick me out of that boat. I've acknowledged that. We too. just disagree on when the when the critical points might be. And, and, and I guess you know, none of us can say like there is no one date that's the date. Certain. All right, Bobby, two months. Two months and one day. No, I'm saying, like, at what point? At what point do you really start to get nervous if you're the government? Well, they, sh- yeah, they should be nervous from the outset, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of the, you, know, you ask a fair question. At what point, if you're advising the government, you say, "Listen, this is getting problematic." It's intimately intertwined with, well, what's the status of any efforts to get into court to press the issue? Right. So, why, so, so there, as we mentioned at the top, right, the government filed its reply on the sort of show cause order mm-hmm. um, last Thursday, November 9th. Right. So we, oh, basically we've got a week under, yeah. under our belts. Um, and I'm surprised that we haven't heard from Judge Chutkin yet. Like this strikes me as a, a, a case that's calling for urgency. Right. And, and part of what's interesting here is it begins to be a little bit on Judge Chutkin to get on this. I agree. If Judge Chutkin decides, oh, I'm going to take a few months on this one, Boy. this begins to be that person's responsibility. Well, and the other thing is, right, I mean, one can only imagine that whoever loses is going to the D.C. Circuit. Well, exactly. Which is, this is sort of like rehashing our, conver- our endless <laughs> conversations about the Milcoms. <laughs> All these scenarios that clearly are going to go beyond, when you're the decision-making judge and you know you're not going to have last word, just decide the darn thing and get out of the way. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's ironic in that case that it's Judge Chutkin because Judge Chutkin is also the district judge at the heart of the um, HHS, DHS immigration abortion controversy. Um, is that right? Yeah. So well, actually, that explains what he might have been doing all this time. She. She. Okay. Um, yeah. Although, I mean, you know, I, I can. I can. You, I, you know, can walk and chew gum at the same time. I was. I was trying yeah. to say that, but apparently I can't. You know, we're, we're being we're being a little harsh. It's it's only been you know five business days. Yeah. It's a complex issue. The, the, for all we know, that opinion is close to issuing. Um, I sure hope so because we'll be watching. We'll be watching. All right. All right. Let's get to the fun. For any of the three people that stayed with us this entire hi mom. Time. <laughs> hey everybody. All right, um, Steve. Best sequels of all time. Let's first we got to define our terms. Okay. Sequel, not self-defining. There are several possible, reasonable interpretations. So let me throw out a let me throw out a sort of test case and see if you believe it's a sequel or not. Yeah. Empire Strikes Back. It is a sequel, but is it a sequel in the sense that we are describing here? Um, you t- you state your rule that you told me about earlier. All right. So so I ascribe to the Scream Three definition of a sequel. Okay. Right. No which idea is what that, that is. Um, which is that it is not a sequel if the if movies beyond the second one were always planned. Right. So so or the second part of a multi part movie sequence trilogy quadrilogy whatever the heck you call a five movie sequence if the second part is never meant to be the last part. So Fellowship of the Rings Part 16 no. or whatever it is or is not Matrix, a sequel. Or Matrix Reloaded, not a sequel. Because it's one it's a, it's a multi-volume single work. Correct. Okay. That's that's that that's the rule on which that that is the 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 debatable premise on which I am operating this evening. What I what I'm partially with you. I'm partially with you. That's going to impact It takes away Star Trek 2, buddy. 
Well, okay, so here I was about to offer you a <laughs> distinction ah. within your rule, which is that um, there's there's more in the nature of narrative continuity that's anticipated as opposed to just we're going to churn out a lot of films, mm. right? So all the Star Trek films, who can say when the next one? It's not like they were committed, and it's not like there's any real narrative continuity from film to film. Except they filmed except two, for, and three, two and three, they except, filmed together. Except for Spock. Right. Yeah. They but that, just, mean, that just means that the sequel is two and three together. Which is a bit of a problem because three sucks compared three, to two. Three sucks. <laughs> All right, so it's, hold on. I get my pin out for my list here. Um, but but there is a, there is. <laughs> so I'm just I'm thinking. I just keep picturing Christy Alley as a as a Vulcan. What were they, what were they thinking? Uh, they were thinking that she's an up and coming movie star. Oh man, you know. All right, so let's get into our list. Um, you, you you don't like Christy Alley as Savic, huh? I liked her on Cheers. Yeah, fair. A Savic? No. It's uh-huh. a, not a Savic fan. All right. But Ricardo Montalban is con. Yes. The all-time. <laughs> he's the goat. The greatest of all time. All both right. both in the original series as young I Ricardo I and as old Ricardo. Space Seed, right? Isn't that he, the original series he, episode? He tasks me. He tasks me. <laughs> all right. Well, so on that note, so 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 the, the, the mission we gave ourselves was to name our three what we think of as the three top sequels and then one mm-hmm. that maybe ought to have been avoided. Right. And we may we may name things that don't fit each other. All right, so you go first. All right. Uh, and this probably doesn't By the way, did you rank them this week? I did not rank them. Oh boo. Uh, but you know, I'll go on a limb here and say this this is my favorite sequel. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily fit your rule. Okay. Aliens. The second aliens. Was the third planet at the time they made the second? I don't see that. See that? I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's so. not at all obvious. But anyways, under my rule of there's no, there's no like predetermined aliens. narrative direct continuity. Aliens, really? Oh my god, I love that film. Okay, so so we're, if we're starting, that was your favorite favorite. That's my number one. All right, so if we're doing number one, I don't know how you could have missed the greatest American movie ever made. Hmm, you might have to be a bit more specific. Really? Okay, <laughs> I'm looking at you. Um, the Godfather Part Two. See, I actually put a big question. I'm gonna. You tell me. You tell my listeners. What did I write? You wrote two. Meh. Oh, Godfather Two. Meh. Nah. Meh. <laughs> you, you're meh. Godfather Part Two, the great American movie. You're darn right. I am. On what ground? On the ground that it, it's a little overrated. It's good. I liked it. It's it's vastly better than Godfather Three, which I think is one thing we agree on. <laughs> if oh, only this were television, the look Ugh. on your face before Ugh. I God, said that. Godfather Three doesn't even deserve to be called Godfather. Oh my just Stepson. It, it, Stepson it, Three. Godfather. Godfather Three, real quick. So Sofia Coppola, obviously great director, talented person, not the best actress. Not and, so much. and also giving just terrible lines yes. to read. Um, Although there's one great line in Godfather Three. But it's not from her. No, it's from De Niro. It's from uh, Al Pacino. Just, Just when they pulled, I thought I was yeah. out, they, they pulled, pulled me back, back in. in. That, that <laughs> actually saves it from being a terrible film. One line? I, and I thought that Andy Garcia was okay. Yeah, a little overdone. Yeah, it's great. Andy Garcia. All right. Anyway. Um, all right. So so we each have one. Okay. 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 Um, I did have Wrath of Khan on my list, but I'm willing to remove it under your rule and even uh-huh. my own rule about narrative continuity. Star uh-huh. Trek Three takes it. It's so good that it ought to still be on the list. Um you already told me I can't use Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and this Also leaves, a great movie. This leaves me with, uh, I'm torn between these. Both of these have further sequels. I don't think any of them really necessarily were going to beget further sequels. And definitely, they probably shouldn't have. Uh-huh. I am torn between Lethal Weapon 2 and Terminator 2. What you got? Terminator 2! We have a, we have an agreement. So, Term- so Terminator 2 definitely is a sequel because T3 was not planned at the time they made T2, and there's actually a long gap. I'm not sure it was two. planned at the time that they produced T3. Well, there's also that. Um, right. Terminator 2, I think, is... So Terminator 2 and Godfather Part 2 are both movies I would put in the category of sequels that were better than the original. Yes. And actually, as we say this, I thought of another that's in that exact same vein, including the fact that once the awesome sequel was made, they then tried to cash in with crappier sequ- yeah. uh, further yeah. sequels. Um, um, Road Warrior. Yeah. Road Warrior. Yeah. I mean, Mad Max is classic in its own limited yeah. way in the same way that Terminator yeah. is. Yeah. Originally the weapon. Yeah. All of them rose above the original and then begat a bunch of crazy. No, I think I think T two has to be on the list of, of, of great sequels. Yeah. It's it's just brilliant. All right, so I'm gonna go off on I'm gonna go on a bit of a limb here for my third one. This is actually a, a special subcategory, best sports sequel. All right, all right, okay. All right. Major League Two. 
Interesting. I under so major league. I think. Yeah, is, I was gonna say like so. Major so, league is like, so great. No, no. So I don't think major league two is a sequel that's better than the original. I think major yeah. league is actually one of the great sports movies ever Absolutely. made ever. Just a bit. But outside. major league two has some. I mean, what makes major league two so good is that it is making fun of itself in some places in ways that is inspired. Some of the lines between Bob Euchre and Monty. You know, Monty says something at some point, and Bob Euchre says, "Dynamite drop in, Monty. That broadcast school has really paid off." Uh, the meta-ness of uh, it's a very it's meta. Uh, oh, that's um, very interesting. Are there any contenders like competitive? What are are there any sequels? sports sequels? Seabiscuit um, Two was terrible. Hoosiers Part Two that was awful. Charlie <laughs> Sheen that was just terrible. <laughs> Wait, there's no such thing. Hot Shots Part Two. I know. Oh, you're making it up. I said okay. Hoosiers, yeah. Uh, I'm like, wait, Hoosiers part two, what, they lose? How can, how can Hoosiers oh, work a second night. time? I don't know if there are any other sports sequels, but in that case, I'm definitely right. That's right. And I think I can safely say Major League 3 was not in contemplation when they made Major League <laughs> you're 2. You're safe bet there. Um, my favorite Bob Euchre call, though, mm. it's a little bit not G-rated, but it's a nighttime episode, so I think yeah, I'm going to it. Tomlinson's going to need a rocket up his ass to catch that one. <laughs> that is a pretty good line. You don't hear that every day. No. All right, so uh, I wanted to throw in the, the worst sequel of all time. Yes. Um, and this By the is, way, honorable mention to Pitch Perfect 2 while we're talking. Oh, yeah. No, the, the okay. Pitch, Pitch Perfect's a very strong series. There, there's another one coming out, I think. Oh, the, maybe, oh, the two may not. Was, I don't know if it was planned. Uh-oh, that may violate my yeah, rule. Yeah, we'll see. All right. It's a good thing you said it now. Um, so this is, this is a little provocative, perhaps. I'm interested in your reaction. And here, it's mainly a function here. I'm really talking about the delta between the greatness of the original. <laughs> and the crappiness and, and of just, the follow-up. And, and since you, you know, of course, it's tempting to say, like, all the prequels to yeah. Star Wars, but that's all been ruled out by, yeah, yeah. by your rule. Doesn't that help? Yeah, it does help. So I'm going to throw this out there. Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mm. Disappointing movie. Yes. And kind of gross when he rips his, the heart out of the guy. Yeah, I don't want the grossness, but it's like, yeah. what are we doing here? In short round, are you kidding me? Right. Whereas Raiders of the Lost Ark is amazing, and, and I actually think Last Crusade, is, Last Crusade amazing. is amazing. That which underscores the terribleness of Temple of Doom. I don't know, because Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, if you want to talk about a movie that jumps the shark. But that's like Phantom Menace. It's like, that's down the path of yeah. just cashing in. All right, so I'll, I'll, I will grant you Raiders of the Lost Ark, although I'm not, I wonder. Wait, can I, can I come back to Crystal Skull for a second? Do you remember the, this outrageously bad scene when they're racing through the jungle, running from the ants, and then the monkeys are in the trees? Yeah. And so it's a high-speed thing where somehow the monkeys are also keeping up with the vehicle. Yeah. Um, and right before you see the monkeys, I, I think they showed a monkey, and I turned to my wife and I said, you know, this movie's so bad, they're probably going to have the monkeys like jump into the chase too. <laughs> and then immediately it happened, I just was like, we, this is like, leave the movie bad. So I have two things to say about, about Crystal Skull. The first First is that they actually filmed a large part of it on Yale's campus when I was in law school, mm. right? So I actually was there for some of the filming. Um, you know, the the scenes, the the car chase, right, um, is actually for whatever reason they decided to film it at Yale because I guess New Haven is like an appropriate, <laughs> like it looks like the 1950s. Oh, that's um, perfect. And the second is the the alien plot twist at the end. Oh, I come know. the I f know. on! I know it's so disappointing. All right, so I actually don't have a, a nominee for worst sequel. I have a nominee for worst decision to not make a sequel Ooh, in I the like history that. of the world. Okay. All right. So, um, for a long time apparently I actually don't know if this is true, but there's the urban legend is that for a long time Mel Brooks was planning a sequel to Spaceballs. <laughs> and unlike unlike just a, the So in Spaceballs itself, right? They talk about the sequel, Spaceballs 2: The Search for More Money, but actually <laughs> the 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 name that was proposed for the Spaceballs sequel was Spaceballs 3: The Search for Spaceballs 2. Oh, that's good. Oh, and you were in a meta theme tonight. I like that. And it would have been like, I mean, you know, it probably would have been really stupid, but I think Spaceballs is actually an underappreciated, like, genius movie. C.R. Schwartz is as big as mine. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's um, full of great lines. He was my father's, sister's, cousin's, mother's, roommate's, brother's, <laughs> cousin's, former priest. What does that make us? Absolutely nothing, nothing, which is what you soon shall be. <laughs> oh, Rick Moranis is so good in that movie. And, and finally, kids, cover your ears, but the best line of the whole movie, yeah. right? She's gone from suck to, to blow. blow. Oh, the, the, the giant vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that may be a rental. Oh, we don't rent anymore, do we? We don't rent anymore. Yeah. Um, all right, so so sequels. I think that was a profitable... That was good. Uh, that was a profitable that was good, all right. Uh, you know, a random bonus bit of trivia. Movie that I was in. Oh, tell the tell the All people. Right. I, I'm going to start with some hints here. Really, really bad movie. Uh huh. That's that's not that's not helpful. No, but well, let's start to get there. Has Uma Thurman. Uh huh. 
Robert Downey Jr. Uh huh. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Huh. 1980s. Uh huh. There's football. Yeah, you've lost me. No, because no one saw this movie. <laughs> so they filmed a movie called Johnny B. Good. Look it up there. Johnny B. Good. Do you have, an IM, do you have a credit? No, no, no. Oh. I don't have any lines. Uh, oh, fact, is this your high school football days? Yes. Oh. So in high school football, they wanted to do a film where Anthony Michael Hall is a hotshot Texas high school quarterback being recruited by all the schools, and there's corruption and all this stuff. And they came to our high school to film the football scenes and did it during spring break. And so we, the, the football players from the high school, we played in the scenes. And uh, I'll say a couple of things. One, um, Robert Downey Jr. was so cool to everybody. The, the actors were around during that week a fair amount. Robert Downey Jr. was real nice. Um, we filmed a scene where he was the quarterback in the huddle. Mm-hmm. And it just he was cool. Anthony Michael Hall was not so nice to us. And uh, suffice to say, it made, made me more of a lifelong fan of Robert Downey Jr. So that was pretty cool. A couple of my friends got to be on the back of the video box cover, and they sure loved going into Old Blockbuster, grabbing that copy of that terrible VHS tape, and turning around and saying, look, there we are, and there's all our high school coaches. Me, I'm the right tackle on the team, and you can't see my face. And don't get to hear me. Hey, you know, whatever works, right? Hey, it was my brush with Hollywood fame. Uh, mine was my appearance when I was 11 on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Nice. Were, uh, were you in the, like, tell me. Really? Yeah. Uh, it's on the internet. It didn't go well. <laughs> Did you have a speaking part? Uh, well, I was, it's the game show, right? Where in the World is Carmen, I was a contestant. Oh, so you were a contestant. I was I a contestant. like a studio audience. No, no, I was a contestant on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Oh, my God. My goal is to get you on Jeopardy. I think you could clean house there. I don't know. We've been watching the Tournament of Champions this week, and it's making me feel pretty stupid. Yeah, well, the, the robots are going to take over all that stuff anyway. True. All right. Well, on that note, we should tell folks that we're actually going to be away next week, right, for Thanksgiving. That's right. So you'll actually have an even happier Thanksgiving than you had expected because it will be devoid of the National Security Law Podcast. This episode is plenty long enough to tide you over. Seriously. Indeed, you could even listen to it twice. <laughs> This is like, so, um, Maddie. I won't listen to it once. My daughter Maddie will only listen to Elmo in the car on the way to and from school every day. And and not only will she only listen to Elmo, there's only one Elmo album right now that she actually likes. And at the very end of the last song, Elmo comes on and says, oh, the album is over. But guess what? You can play the album again. <laughs> that is on purpose. That is a, a not not wink is not quite the it's right a word suggestive, for it. Right? It's no, a, it's it's a dig at the parents. No, no, and so and so I always respond under my breath. You know, don't t- you know? Uh, let me tell you what you can do with yourself, Elmo. <laughs> well, in the Chesney household, when we when we drive up to second grade with my youngest Alice, we've been on a big Veggie Tales kick, so uh, you have that to look forward to. Oh, goody! And on that note, everybody, uh, we'll see you on the far side of Thanksgiving. Have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. Adios.